Over the past couple weeks, sentences have been handed out to four members of the far-right Proud Boys organization for the group's involvement in the January 6, 2021 attack on the United States Capitol. Enrique Tario of Miami, Florida, was sentenced to 22 years in prison. Ethan Nordine of Auburn, Washington, was sentenced to 18 years in prison. Joe Biggs of Ormond Beach, Florida, was sentenced to 17 years in prison, and Zachary Rell of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, was sentenced to 15 years in prison. All four had previously been found guilty of seditious conspiracy in May of 2023, while a fifth defendant, Dominic Pozzola of Rochester, New York, was acquitted. The Proud Boys aren't the only political organization to have its members put on trial for seditious conspiracy as part of the Capitol attack. In November of 2022, two members of the Oath Keepers were also convicted of seditious conspiracy. Stuart Rhodes of Granbury, Texas was sentenced to 18 years in prison, while Kelly Meggs of Donellan, Florida was sentenced to 12 years in prison. The seditious conspiracy prosecutions are unique compared to the many other charges leveled against capital attackers in that seditious conspiracy explicitly implies an intent to undermine the authority or legitimacy of the United States government. In other words, the seditious conspiracy charges are the first official criminal charges accusing capital attackers of having partaken in an attempt to overthrow the government rather than a run-of-the-mill riot or disturbance of the peace. Although the ill-fated Sedition Act criminalized all supposedly seditious speech in 1798, seditious conspiracy as we know it became a crime in 1861 at the beginning of the Civil War. However, due to the failure of Reconstruction under the postbellum Johnson administration, ex-Confederates were not charged with seditious conspiracy. More recently, Federal seditious conspiracy law has been used to prosecute political extremists, including Nazi sympathizer Charles Coughlin in 1940, segregationist agitator Edwin Walker in 1962, and Islamist militant Omar Abdelrahman in 1995. There is another prominent group that has also been the target of this law, Puerto Rican nationalists. The Caribbean island of Puerto Rico first came under American authority in 1898 after Spain's loss of the territory at the end of the Spanish-American War. American colonial rule over Puerto Rico was almost immediately controversial due to the heavily asymmetric relationship between the territory and the federal government. While sugar plantations in Puerto Rico raked in massive amounts of revenue for the U.S. government, the island's infrastructure was largely neglected, leaving much of the island without roads and 85% of the population without access to education. In 1917, the U.S. government granted citizenship to Puerto Ricans, allowing them to live and work in the continental U.S., but this was widely seen in Puerto Rico as a ploy to increase the draft pool during World War I. In response, the Nationalist Party of Puerto Rico was founded, advocating for full Puerto Rican independence from the U.S. Under the Nationalist Party's interpretation, Spain did not have the authority to cede Puerto Rico to the U.S. after losing possession of the territory. Due to a lack of electoral success, the Nationalist Party shifted strategies in the 1930s, forming a militant wing. 
The Nationalist Party carried out attacks on American soldiers and Puerto Rican police, resulting in violent crackdowns on nationalists. One such incident, the 1937 Ponce Massacre, resulted in the deaths of 19 nationalist protesters and civilians, as well as two police officers. As the 1950s approached, so too did the prospect of giving Puerto Rico a constitution and making it an organized, unincorporated territory. This 1952 constitution would create the Puerto Rico we know today, the residents of which are American citizens, but also don't have congressional representation, can't vote in presidential elections, and aren't required to pay certain federal taxes. Although the vast majority of Puerto Ricans saw this as a preferable alternative to colonial status, the Nationalist Party saw Commonwealth status as a threat to Puerto Rican self-determination. One member of the Nationalist Party who joined the fight against the new status was not Puerto Rican, but was instead from the continental United States. I'm going to tell you all about her right now on Historia Obscura. Welcome to Historia Obscura. This is the 97th episode of this podcast, and I'm excited for you to hear it. Special thank you to Patreon subscribers Barbara, Cameron Sherman, Scott Sherman, David Kahn, Lisa Chase, and Tom. If you want to receive a shout-out in every episode, among other benefits, help support this podcast by going to patreon.com slash historiaobscura and becoming a patron. One more thing, make sure to stick around for a little to hear a message about the sponsor of this episode of Historia Obscura, Spotify for Podcasters. If you want to make your own podcast, you'll want to know everything about how to use Spotify for Podcasters. Mary Reynolds was born on February 29, 1916, in Terraville, South Dakota. Now an uninhabited ghost town, Terraville was once a mining hub in the Black Hills mountain range. After graduating from high school and attending a small local college, Reynolds taught English at a high school on the Cheyenne River Indian Reservation for two years. During her time at Cheyenne River, Reynolds learned about the broken promises to the Sioux people made by the United States government. She witnessed the rampant poverty, alcoholism, and dysfunction that all continue to plague South Dakota's Native American reservations to this day. This experience motivated Reynolds to become an activist for the self-determination of different ethnic groups. In 1938, Reynolds graduated from Northwestern University with a master's degree, and she soon moved to Manhattan, New York. After settling in East Harlem, she joined the Ashram, a political activist organization that used nonviolent civil disobedience to push for racial justice and social change. The Ashram emphasized the importance of Gandhian pacifism and interethnic reconciliation, both of which Reynolds wholeheartedly believed in. As East Harlem has a massive Puerto Rican diaspora, Reynolds became acquainted with many Puerto Ricans, and she and several colleagues set up an after-school and summer activity programs for local Puerto Rican children. Meanwhile, in Puerto Rico, Pedro Albizu Campos was serving as the president of the Nationalist Party. Albizu, who has a community organization named after him in Newark, New Jersey, 
was a Harvard-educated attorney who had previously fought in the Irish struggle for independence. In 1937, he was convicted of seditious conspiracy and sentenced to 10 years in a federal penitentiary in Atlanta, Georgia. In 1943, Albizu contracted arteriosclerosis and was transferred to Columbus Hospital in Manhattan in the same city as Reynolds herself. first met Pedro Albizu Campos after visiting him in the hospital as part of a Harlem ashram initiative. The two quickly became close friends, and knowing that the ashram had been involved in efforts to free India from British rule, Albizu drew the group into the Puerto Rican independence movement. In 1945, Reynolds founded the American League for Puerto Rico's Independence, and she visited Puerto Rico for the first time. She began testifying to the United Nations, arguing that Puerto Rico's status violated the UN Declaration regarding non-self-governing territories. She also testified before Congress, urging senators and representatives to support Puerto Rican independence. In 1948, Reynolds also provided assistance to a University of Puerto Rico student strike, and upon doing investigative research on the ensuing police crackdown against the strike, she concluded that the backlash was politically motivated. She began drafting the manuscript for a book on her findings related to the incident, which would be titled Campus in Bondage. But soon afterwards, Reynolds found herself with a target on her back. In the early morning of October 31, 1950, Reynolds was asleep when all of a sudden, her home was raided by dozens of police officers and National Guardsmen. Reynolds' manuscript was taken, and she was arrested on suspicion of working with the Nationalist Party of Puerto Rico. At the time, the evidence against her was flimsy. It amounted to an accusation of riding in a car carrying illegal weapons and her 1949 statement pledging loyalty to the Nationalist Party. The next day, however, all hell broke loose. Nationalist Party members Oscar Collazo and Griselio Torresola attempted to assassinate President Harry Truman in Washington, D.C. Truman survived unscathed, but the assailants succeeded in killing a Secret Service agent. This near-miss, combined with the earlier evidence against Reynolds, caused her to be charged with two counts of seditious conspiracy. In September of 1951, the trial of Ruth Mary Reynolds began. According to the prosecution, Reynolds had pledged her life and fortune to the, quote, illegal, criminal, and malicious overthrow of the American-backed government of Puerto Rico. Reynolds and her defense counsel argued that the charge of riding in a vehicle carrying weapons was erroneous and that her declaration of allegiance to the Nationalist Party was protected under the First Amendment's free speech clause. Nevertheless, Reynolds was convicted and sentenced to six years at La Princesa Prison in San Juan, Puerto Rico. La Princesa, a detention center dating back to 1837, was notorious for the hard labor its inmates endured while incarcerated, as well as for the crowded and unsanitary conditions inmates lived in. Back in New York, the American League for Puerto Rico's independence dissolved due to a lack of leadership. 
In her absence, some of Reynolds' colleagues founded the Ruth Reynolds Defense Committee, which raised funds for her defense as she sought an appeal to her case. Reynolds' appeal was finally accepted in June of 1952, and she was tentatively released from prison. As part of her counsel, she took on Conrad Lynn, a famous African-American attorney known for his defense of civil liberties and opposition to racial segregation. In 1954, the Supreme Court of Puerto Rico officially quashed Reynolds' conviction on procedural and constitutional grounds. After her criminal case concluded, Ruth Mary Reynolds took a job as a librarian and archivist at the New York Psychoanalytic Institute in Manhattan. She also continued her activism for Puerto Rican independence. In March of 1954, Nationalist Party members Rafael Cancel Miranda, Andres Figueroa Cordero, Irvin Flores, and Lolita Lebron carried out a mass shooting in the Capitol during a House of Representatives session in the hopes of bringing attention to the Puerto Rican nationalist cause. Five members of Congress were wounded in the attack, and while all four assailants were immediately arrested, so too was Reynolds' old friend in the Nationalist Party, Pedro Albizu Campos, at his home in Puerto Rico. Even though the FBI had been investigating Albizu for so long that they had compiled a one million page report on his activities, no evidence was found connecting him to the attack on the Capitol. Reynolds and Conrad Lynn defended Albizu in court, but it was no use. Albizu was convicted of conspiracy to overthrow the U.S. government and sentenced to 80 years in La Princesa prison. Albizu's health would rapidly deteriorate in prison, leading him to allege that the government had conducted radiation experiments on him. He would later be partially paralyzed by a stroke in 1956, ultimately dying shortly after his release on parole in 1965. As for Reynolds, she spoke to the UN on the Puerto Rican question again in 1977, this time to the Special Committee on Decolonization. She also finally published her 1948 draft of Campus in Bondage in 1989. She never saw her original manuscript again after the 1950 police raid, but she had sent a carbon copy of it back to New York prior to her arrest. Reynolds moved back to South Dakota in her old age, and on December 2nd, 1989, she died of natural causes at the age of 73. She continues to be venerated by many Puerto Ricans, and she holds the unique distinction of being one of the few members of the Nationalist Party charged with seditious conspiracy, as well as one of the few non-Puerto Ricans to go to jail for the Puerto Rican cause. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Historia Obscura. I really enjoyed learning about it myself. If you want to suggest an episode of Historia Obscura, send me a voice message at podcasters.spotify.com slash pod slash show slash Historia Obscura slash message. Feel free to leave your name and location, and if I like your idea, I'll make an episode of it and give you credit. Additionally, if you want to support this podcast, go to patreon.com slash Historia Obscura and become a patron. 
And of course, I can't go without once again thanking this episode's sponsor, Spotify for Podcasters. They are by far the easiest way to make a podcast, so if you want to make your own, go to spotify.com slash podcasters. With that said, this is Jack from Historia Obscura, signing off, but not for long.